Welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Clay. I'm Sarah. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Sarah, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. I hope you guys out there listening are also doing good because today is a very special episode. <gasps> we are doing a, I don't know what you would call it, Sarah. A double header. A double header. Um, we're both going to be telling a story today. But it's going to be a shorter story, so it's going to be about the same length, uh, but it's going to contain two stories, one from myself and one from Sarah. So we're hoping that you uh, enjoy something a little shorter, but consistent of the same length. Should be interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to go first. Sarah, I want to tell you about a special place. Oh, okay. And to, to begin talking about this special place, it it requires us to... Um, sort of define what makes a nation a nation. Okay. Like what gives a country recognition? Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are some criteria for what considers a country a country. Okay. Some by the definitional standard and others by more like legal standards, um, such as having a population. You have to have a population to be able to be considered a country. Um but the most important thing, I think, is that other countries recognize your country. Because it doesn't do very much good to say, <laughs> I own Claytopia <laughs> and nowhere else in the world cares. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So this is actually a problem for several countries in the world. In fact, depending on which country you ask, you'll get a different answer for the number of countries that exist in the world. I've heard that, and it's like a a pretty significant difference, right? Yeah, it can be. So it really depends on, like, one country will say 193, another country will say 197, maybe, something like that. But there are are definitely real countries, like real countries, that, uh, that face this issue, depending on who you're asking. So, now we're going to back up a little bit um, and start the story. During World War II, Britain had built several offshore anti-aircraft platforms in the North Sea to protect the mainland from German invasion. Mm -hmm. A German invasion that never came, um, but they did have, you know, bombers that came over. Uh, So during the war, they had these these, uh, platforms, uh, like several dozen of them. And after the war, the platforms were, you know, all the munitions and people were taken off of them. But they were basically abandoned okay, and left to rot. And during the 1960s, these platforms would be ho- become homes for illegal offshore pirate radio stations. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, which were pretty popular um, at this time. And, and these, uh, these pirate radio stations were on the mainland and they decided, well, we can just move them offshore uh, towards international water because it's going to be a lot you know, easier to um, broadcast from out there, harder for us to get caught and harder for people, someone to come and get us. And there are a lot of stations that did this and it was very interesting. Um, One such station was called Radio Essex, begun by Patty Roy Bates. When the British passed the Marine Broadcasting Offenses Act in 1976 to shut down these pirate radio stations. (laughs) That's so specific. (laughs) Yeah. Bates... Instead, um, he set up a different, 
He he set up on a different abandoned platform. He left the one he was on mm-hmm. and he moved to a new one called the HM Fort Ruffs. And it was a um a, a pretty large platform. Still small all things considered, but he kicked the inhabitants off of that and he took over. So who sorry, who was there before, do you know? Yeah, it was a different pirate radio. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he wasn't like unhousing people. No, I don't okay. I don't know if they were living on the station. Maybe they were, to okay. be honest, but they had no rightful claim to it. Right. So he took control of HM Fort Ruffs. And this actually this platform had the benefit of being so far out from the shore that it was considered international waters. Nice. So the British had no authority to kick him off. So HM Ford Ruffs is about seven nautical miles off the coast of Suffolk in the North Sea. It is about one acre. It's, it, it, it takes up about one acre of, of land, so to speak. Okay. It's a one acre platform sitting atop two hollow towers. <laughs> the platform consists of a helipad. And a crane that's used to lift small boats or people out of the water. Wow. Because it sits up very high. Mm-hmm. Um, the building uh, takes up most of the platform. And it consists of accommodations for up to 300 Royal Navy personnel. Um, including sleeping quarters, a kitchen, bathrooms, generators, etc., etc. Wow. It was intended to house people. Yeah. A, a good number of people. So... While Bates never reestablished Radio Essex on the platform, he did establish something else. Uh, close to a year, or a year and a half later, or sorry, a half a year or a year later, on September 2nd, 1967, Bates declared the platform to be the Principality of Sealand. Oh! And moved his family onto the new Micronation. Now, Bates' son says in a BBC article that I read about this, he said, we started with candles, then upgraded to hurricane lamps and pump-up generators. So eventually they did have electricity, they had radio, they had television, plumbing, and other modern comforts in Sealand. Mostly in in thanks to a a lot of the original equipment that had been left behind. Oh, man, okay. Because as I said, this place had been designed to house people not just be just a uh just a platform in this in the sea just for people to sit on and and you know wait for death i'm just impressed that it still works like 20 plus years after being decommissioned that's amazing well i think they did have to do a lot of maintenance ah yeah (laughs) but but the uh infrastructure to you know do this was there they didn't have to start from scratch that's wild so it's pretty it's pretty amazing the following year, the Micronation would encounter its first international incident. Oh! British workers entered Sealand territory to service a navigational buoy, and Michael Bates, Patty Roy's son, fired warning shots oh. from the platform, <laughs> basically saying, you're in our territory. <laughs> now, he was summoned to court on firearms charges because he was a British citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the court ruled that the incident... Because the incident occurred in international waters, there really wasn't anything they could do. They had no jurisdiction. Yeah. So Sealand prevailed. That's kind of the point of international waters. Mm -hmm. By the 1970s, Sealand had a population of 50, including family, friends, and maintenance employees. Wow. 
but Sealand was alluring to others, specifically Alexander Ackenbach. Ackenbach was a German diamond dealer and a business partner with the Bates in the 70s. He saw the economic possibilities of Sealand. You, you can see where this goes. Uh-huh. As a tourist destination, and he wanted mm-hmm. to expand the single platform to a resort with a casino, a hotel, and other profitable expansions. Mm-hmm. However, by 1978, the plans were not moving forward as, as Alexander had wanted, and uh, there was some tension. And, and tension is interesting when you're dealing with something that exists outside of the rule of law. Right. Because basically anything can go. Oh, yeah. You know? So in August of that year, 1978, he and several hired mercenaries attacked Sealand <gasps> while, Bates, while Bates and his wife were traveling, and they captured his son, Michael, hostage. Oh, no. After a few days, Michael was released, and Sealand belonged to Alexander. Oh, dear. To do what he wanted. But this was only for a moment. Roy formed his own team and retook Sealand by arriving in (laughs) helicopters and dropping down uh, on the platform by ropes armed with shotguns. This is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. It's crazy, right? This is crazy. The pirates turned captives were all released except for one. A German lawyer named Jerome Putz, sent by um, Alexander on the initial invasion. Putz was uh, charged with treason against Sealand. Oh, my God. And held, and held at Sealand for two months. Oh, my God. So because he was a German, uh, you know, West Germany wanted to get him back. Mm-hmm. So they sent a diplomat to negotiate his release, which Roy agreed uh, after Putz had paid a fine of approximately $137,000 in today's money. Oof. But, interestingly, this incident led Michael to declare de facto recognition of sea land because a nation, a real nation, had sent a diplomat to negotiate with them. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So, I think it's the closest any micronation had come to real recognition. Oh, my God. So, sea land still exists today. Oh, I'm sorry. It has its own constitution, (laughs) its own flag, a coat of arms, national anthem, its own currency and passports. They even have a football team. (laughs) British or American? I assume British football. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Currently, Prince Michael Bates is the head of (laughs) Sealand, but he lives in Essex. Okay. Uh, Sealand is inhabited these days only by approximately two caretakers, Mm. but it still operates like a country, despite not being recognized by any other country. (laughs) For a reasonable fee, you can become a lord, a lady, a baron, a baroness, or even a count, countess, duke, or duchess of Sealand. Hmm. So this is tough. So when you're doing your Christmas shopping this year, honey... It's between Baroness and Countess for me. Okay. I'd be really happy with either one. They both sound great. Um, so to your discretion, whichever one you'd like to get for me. Well, well, I, I, we'll see. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, and you can also be knighted. Okay. In Sealand. You can pretty much do whatever you want at Sealand. It's apparently, yeah. 
So their football team has played in an international game. Oh my god! <laughs> in 2007, Michael Martel represented Sealand in the World Cup of Kung Fu in Canada, where he won two silver medals. Wow! Making Sealand the first and, to my knowledge, only micro nation to ever appear on a world championship podium. That's amazing. And their flag currently, I think currently, uh, sits atop Mount Everest. Wow. <laughs> but like I said, no other country recognizes Sealand. And to make matters worse, in 1987, the UK extended their territorial waters from three nautical miles offshore to 12. That's messed up. You yeah. can't do that. That's an invasion. It, it basically is. England's back on their old bullshit. That's messed up. <laughs> yeah. They saw some new land. Ugh. So this means that Sealand is now in British waters. Mm. So it's unlikely that anyone will ever in the future recognize Sealand considering that. But it's still, it still exists and it's still a very uh, amazing story. That makes me very happy. Yeah. I like just knowing that that's there. Yeah. Oh, man. And I've never heard of that before. I'm going to have to look up that flag. We'll post the flag on our Instagram because I, I just, for myself, I really need to know what it looks like. I bet it's cool. It's 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 not uh, too... Uh, it, it, it looks like a regular flag. I'll, I'll say that. Oh. It's not crazy looking. But if you want to see pictures of Sealand, um, you should check out our Instagram because there will be pictures of it. It's very cool. Okay. And it's, it's in the Guinness World Record okay. book. Um, I think it's... Um, the largest plot of land, largest um, man-made plot of land that's been turned into a nation or something like that. Okay. Um, well, so Guinness Book of World Records recognizes that as a nation. That's pretty official. It's a, it's a little official. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, there there are other micronations in the world, mm-hmm. but they all exist on land, right? Where they could easily, if someone, if if the country that lays actual claim to it could easily just walk in and say all right get out yeah as far as i know this is the only like man-made landform incredible so yeah there you go <sighs> i just i will say i think if they had come up with a more serious sounding name than Sealand, they might have done better at getting some recognition it sounds like a theme park when you mentioned it to me in passing a few days ago, I was like, are you talking about sea parks from the <laughs> IT crowd? Like, what What are you talking about? I don't know. I think that might be where they went wrong. He may have wanted to call it the the nation of Bates, Bates world. Mm-hmm. But he went for something a little more neutral. Okay. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying. We, we could have done a little bit better than Sealand. But that's, you it's, know what? I'm... Once I'm the the Baroness <laughs> or Countess of Sealand, I'll probably feel differently about it. You know, have we'll that, yeah. I'll have that hometown pride. <laughs> so for my half of the episode, I want to talk to you about an extremely badass woman named Judith Love Cohen. And a lot of the stuff that she had going on was happening around the same time that Sealand was being established. Mm. So that lines up pretty nicely. Nice, yeah. So Judy was born in Brooklyn on August 16th, 1933. As a child, she had three passions, dancing, astronomy, and numbers. 
Like many little girls, she dreamed of being a prima ballerina someday. But unlike most little girls, especially at that time, she was also so good at math that by middle school, a bunch of her classmates were paying her to do their math homework. Nice. Oh, yeah. So because there was no such thing as a female astronomer back then, she gave up on that part of the dream, but she found new aspirations. Um, Sometime in elementary school, like pretty early in her school career, she was introduced to the one and only female math teacher she would ever have. Oh. Um, She's like, okay, wow. Like, I can actually get paid to do math homework as an adult. That's perfect, (laughs) right? That's the perfect gig. As she got older, and keeping in mind that this would have been in the late 40s and early 50s, uh, she was often the only girl in her math classes at all. Mm. When she reached high school, she expressed to her guidance counselor that she wanted to find a career where she could use her killer math skills, perhaps as a teacher. But of course, this man had the audacity to tell her she should go to a finishing school instead of college and learn to become a lady. Oh. Uh-huh. Boo. It's like the complete opposite. That is the complete opposite. But, you know, he's like, you know, you can balance your husband's checkbook and like maybe that will be enough for you. But just make sure you keep quiet about that because smart girls are not attractive. Mm. Get out of my office. I need to lice all the chair. At age 19, she actually started dancing with the Metropolitan Opera Ballet Company in New York. But she was simultaneously studying math at Brooklyn College on a scholarship. You know, just really telling that guidance counselor where he could stick it. It was at Brooklyn College that she met the love of her life. I don't mean her future husband, although she met him there too. I mean engineering. Mm, Okay. After two years, she transferred to the University of Southern California to continue working on her degree at night, while during the day she worked as a junior engineer at North American Aviation. While there, she earned a Bachelor of Science and a Master's of Science, all without encountering another female student working in the same program. Crazy. Mm-hmm. As busy as she was between her studies and her extremely challenging career, she and her husband, Bernard, decided, you know, what's one more thing? And they started a family. During this time, Judy gave birth to her first three children, Neil, Howard, and Rachel. This didn't slow her down, though. After graduating in 1957, she was hired by a NASA contractor called Space Technology Laboratories as an electrical engineer. It's worth noting that at this time, fewer than 0.05% of all engineers in the world were women. And Judy was often the only woman in the room at Space Tech. Because a gal still needs hobbies, she took up dancing again at this time, though not ballet. Judy became interested in something called recreational folk dancing, which was an interest she maintained for the rest of her life. And it also definitely sounds like something from the 60s. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea what's meant by recreational folk dancing, but it sounds like it would be a great outlet for relieving some of the insane amounts of stress that she must have been under. I mean, right? Like she was literally doing everything possible. Yeah. In 1969, after divorcing her first husband and marrying her second, because yes, she still had time for love amongst everything else she had going on, uh, she gave birth to her fourth child, Jack. To quote from her obituary written by her son, Neil, she actually went to her office on the day that Jack was born. When it was time to go to the hospital, she took with her a computer printout of the problem she was working on. Later that day, she called her boss and told him that she had solved the problem. And, oh, yes, the baby was born, too. Wow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Obviously, though, badass that she is, none of that slowed her down. 
While at Space Tech, she worked on some hugely important projects like programming the guidance computer for the Minuteman missile, the ground system for the tracking data and relay system satellite that orbited for more than 40 years, and a little something known as the abort guidance system for the Apollo space program, a.k.a. the thing that saved the lives of the Apollo 13 crew. Wow. But just balance your husband's checkbook. Wink. (laughs) Don't do math. This was quite understandably the thing she was proudest of in her lifetime. Without her abort guidance system, the astronauts on Apollo 13 would have died out in space after the power failed on their shuttle. She was entirely to thank for the fact that they made it home. The crew later paid a special visit to Space Tech to thank Judy in person for all that she had done. She continued her work as an engineer until her retirement in 1990, when she used the first free time she'd ever had in her whole damn life to write a series of children's books that encouraged little girls who were interested in STEM careers. Mm. Along with her third husband, she published 11 books with titles such as You Can Be a Woman Astronomer and You Can Be a Woman Entomologist. She said the only encouragement she ever received was from her parents, and she wanted to make sure that other brilliant little girls didn't experience what she did. It wasn't enough for her to kick the door open. She wanted to make sure it stayed open to all the generations that followed. This included her eldest son, Neil, who went on to become an accomplished computer scientist and systems engineer in his own right. He began his career at Space Tech, which is now known as TRW, He followed right along in mom's footsteps and is best known as the developer of the U.S. Army's first fully automated command and control system, which is still in use today. He also worked on the first digital battlefield system used by the Army and the Marines and the first automated command post, as well as working on lots of other computery military stuff that I simply do not understand at all. (laughs) Though he didn't go into STEM, you may also be familiar with her youngest son, Jack's work. He fronts a band called Tenacious D and has starred in such bangers as Mars Attacks, School of Rock, and Nacho Libre. Oh. Have you ever heard of Jack Black? Hey, yeah. Yeah, friend of the podcast, Jack Black. (laughs) The son of Judith Love Cohen. Wow. Yeah, a lot of brilliance in that bloodline. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. what What a life and what a legacy. Yeah. Yeah, totally... Totally divergent, but I guess that's that's a good thing. Somebody had to be the first, and yeah. I, I think we're all really lucky that it was her. Yeah, that's incredible. What a what a what a life. Oh yeah, I've I've been so excited to tell you that story, but that was <laughs> that was one that was like there was just not quite enough information about her to do like a full length episode because. You know, until recently, we weren't really talking about the women who worked for NASA and who made spaceflight possible and all that kind of stuff. So as her life was happening, nobody was, you know, really making note of it. It's yeah. almost like it was a secret that women were the ones doing all this amazing stuff. Yeah. Well, not anymore. Secrets out. Secrets out, guys. Deal with it. And that guidance counselor, especially, I, I hope your bones are dust. Like, you just should be so ashamed of yourself sir yeah i'm sure that he's he's a skeleton now good well that's it that's it thanks for uh giving us a little bit of your time today i hope you guys enjoyed the special format for our 20th episode um you're free of course to check us out as always on instagram and twitter we're at fantastic h pod on both 
And please shoot us an email if you have any ideas for an episode or you just want to say nice things to us. We're at fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. That's right, Sarah. And until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.